Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Hello, everyone. This is Leanne Nguyen speaking to you from New York. I am so very delighted that you are joining me again this week in this conversation about how to be alive, how what it means for us to be ourselves and to be with each other. Um, today, my guest and companion in dialogue is Jeffrey Deskovich. Now, you can all glean from his bio on the show's page that he's extremely accomplished and that his life story is extraordinary. Many tropes and superlatives have been used to describe him, you know, inspiring and heroic and tireless advocate. His story is sought after and often invoked as a story of survival, of heroism, of triumph. But when I think of Jeff from the few contacts that we've had, I think of time. He strikes me as a man who lives with such an acute sense of time. His schedule is crazy, tyrannical. (laughs) At any time that I call uh, him to arrange to meet, I find that he packs in workshops, media interviews, award ceremonies, classes, classes that he teaches, classes that he's taking in law school. Time is constantly a guardian to defer to, a beast to try to outrun. I also have the sense that time for Jeff is both a jailer, a constraint, but also a precious resource that he is luxuriating in using. And as I was thinking about today, about my encounter with Jeff, I thought a lot about time. And then I realized that the sense of time is specifically a human thing. Only we humans have a subjective sense of time, and only we humans have collective markers for time passing. We humans rely on time for our sense of history, of identity forming and unfolding. Other species do not have birthday celebrations, you know. We rely on time to make meaning and to give continuity to events, to happenings in life that would otherwise be random, disorderly, and ultimately meaningless. Listen to children. Listen to when they start narrating their daily happenings and you see their grasp of time and the reliance on the sense of time in order to get hold of who they are beginning to be, of what is happening around them, to make sense of what their day, their life, their world is about. You hear things like, and then, and then, when am I going to see mama? Is it sleepy time yet? And then I do this with May, and then I do that with Henry, and then I go there, and then I do this, and then, and then. And we adults use time to help children mark their identity. We invoke time to help them mark their connection to us. When you were in my belly, this happened. Next time that you see grandma, she will tell you that. When you get older, I will tell you about this time Time is so connected to our sense of self and to how we ground ourselves in existence. 
It's related to continuity, to causality, ultimately to mortality. The flow of time carries us forward to the future, to that place of hope or of dread, but nevertheless a place of life, a promised aliveness. Because the fact that time has passed, that things have changed, that fact grounds us in the knowledge that we have lived. Because we're aware of time as a concept, as a biological corollary, as a social constraint, we have the means, the the motivation to, to construct identity and to chart our path toward that final inevitable destination that is death. So because of that awareness of the access to that resource, the flow of time gives meaning and hope and even purpose to our existence. Tomorrow, there's always tomorrow. Tomorrow is another day to discover another arrival of life. Yesterday is an accomplishment to mark or a bad trip to forget about or a mistake to learn from, a step taken nevertheless and a moment on earth that was lived. And today, the hours of today are organic, pulsing with demands and promises, propelling us forward to another place, another moment in our existence, whether we want to or not. Another thing about time that marks us as human is that we are terrified of it, at least in this society, the United States of America, where I'm spending time. I listen to everyday discourse and hear so many references to time that point to a fearful, resentful relationship to time. I don't have time for this. Where did the time go? How much time do we have? Time. What is time worth? You know, we pay lawyers, therapists, and other providers of protection and services money not for the quality of their action, certainly not for the impact of the experience that we have with them, but for the time that they spend with us. So how much time, how much time is worth? What, we, what do we use for it for? Do we fight it or does it own us? We are all terrified of the passage of time. We live as if time is a river that we're caught in, that we need to apply all our smarts, all our might to get out of, to get on top of, to manipulate or vanquish its currents and destination. There are so many devices these days and ploys that, that convince us that we can control and manipulate and cheat time. The rationale is that we can increase productivity We can stretch time, purchase more freedom, prolong the years of youthfulness and productivity if we can manage, control time better. And so the proliferation of ever more time-efficient devices, faster modes of transport and communication, quick-fix, time-intensive, time-saving training or healing programs, and oh, anti-aging creams, (laughs) reverse time with this latest collagen, take 10 years off your face, gain back your 30s. What are we really doing when we try to battle time, this river that we are thrown in, this inescapable, relentless, implacable, and surprising river that takes us forward, forward, always forward to that inevitable tomorrow? All animals are afraid of death, 
of physical annihilation. Only we humans are afraid of mortality, of the idea of death, of the experience of dying, even though we're all going there. What happens when we die? Time stops. A final date and stamp on our tombstone. But what happens when time stops in a person's life when he is still alive, as in a trauma or a prison sentence or an out-of-body experience? The world disappears. The self is frozen. The sense of self of being is hijacked and interrupted. You know, that is why for young children, time out is such a powerful tool. That is why the ultimate punishment that we in civilized society have devised is about stopping time. The most effective, the most costly and frightening deprivation that can be inflicted upon man is to take time away from him, to rob him of the sense of time. That is why we make people serve time as punishment. We don't take away their property, their loved ones, their identity, their precious belongings. We don't make them pay back to society for their crimes by, for example, working or donating their wages. We take away time. It's not about taking away their freedom as punishment, by the way, because if that were the case, we could have house arrests where people can live out the punishment of not being able to do what they want to do, not be able to do what they are meant to do in this life, but can still be in the flow of life, still be human. No, we take away time. That will take care of everything else that is foundational to a man's existence. That will ensure that he sees existing. By the way, I'm only speaking here of the time-stopping, dehumanizing, existence-erasing practice that is particular to North American prisons. I'm not talking about the Scandinavia or Europe or even the Middle East. Jeff Deskovich spent 16 years in jail from 1990 to 2006, from the age of 16 when he was still in high school to the age of 32 when most men get married, have their first child, or get their first significant promotion. He was supposed to do life sentence for the murder and rape of a classmate. And so he spent 16 years, that's 192 months, close to 6,000 days in jail. After 16 years, a DNA test was allowed by um, a new regime, and uh, that test linked the DNA at the crime scene definitively uh, to another man. So Jeff's conviction was overturned and he was released. And I think in 2016 or so, he sued the government and won the largest award ever granted by a federal jury in a wrongful conviction case. And he used part of that money to found the Deskovich Foundation for Justice, um, that the, the mission of which I will leave to him to explain more to us. And so here we are. We have here the typical outline of a triumphant story, a, a familiar trope of the victim-turned-hero, a story of triumph of the spirit, a story of time stolen and of wrong repaired, or is it, through money and public redemption. Jeff, are you there? I absolutely am here. <laughs> okay. I'm fighting the water from running because I'm a deep thinker and meaning of life and what's the, you know, how does, you know, life events happen in the overall, in the context of your life and in the kaleidoscopic larger sense of, you know, 
all of life in the world, and you know, it's I, I don't know what to say. How do I follow that? That was brilliant. Oh, well, why don't we line it up? Let me ask you this. You know, who should play you in a Hollywood movie? <laughs> have you dealt with that question before? <laughs> well, I, yeah, no, I have not. But uh, without a doubt, I would have to say Tom Cruise because he's famous <laughs> for doing Mission Impossible, right? And so that's, in a lot of ways, right. uh, the journey of what I'm surviving, my ordeal, and what I'm trying to do now uh, and what I would like to do in the future in a lot of ways is kind of Mission Impossible-esque except that I think that it is possible to work real hard, chase down the dream, and then, you know, being open to moving forward in ways that weren't anticipated. And so there is a chance to turn dream to reality. Uh, but but what, again, what, is, what is your mission? Jeff, what is too, your mission? So I guess it would fit. Well, what is your dream? What is your mission these days? So my dream is to exonerate other people, uh, as an, but as an attorney, um, so that's why I'm in law school, and ultimately to have a office of the foundation in each state and ultimately in each country because wrongful convictions are a worldwide problem and in the process overhaul the justice system to put best practices in place to prevent what happened, prevent what happened to me from happening to other people. That is mm-hmm. my dream. Each one of those you know, a, do you a, think, can you boil it down for the listeners, what, what went wrong with, in your case, or what do you think is the thing that needs to be fixed now at the core of this mess? Yeah, the, yeah what went wrong in my case is, um, well, there was, so first of all, I, I was, there was um, a coerced false confession, there was a, there was a, and that could be fixed by videotaping interrogations, by allowing false confession expert testimony to provide information to juries about what would lead an innocent person to confess. Uh, having a pretrial hearing where the accuracy of a confession is evaluated, uh, it was caused by prosecutorial misconduct. So the remedy there would have like an independent oversight of commission on prosecutor conduct, uh, mm. removing prosecutorial immunity, which is a dastardly doctrine that it doesn't matter how egregious the misconduct or how intentional it is by the prosecutor. If, if, it, if it happened after an arrest, they're immune from lawsuit. So removing that, uh, criminalizing clear-cut intentional misconduct. Uh, it was the fraud by the medical examiner was, was, another, was another factor and an inept public defender. So in terms of remedying the public uh, defender, I mean, having one statewide system so there could be oversight, quality control, eliminating uh, built-in handicaps so there should be an even financial and manpower playing field between the district attorney's office and the public defender. There should be a reduction of caseload, so it's not unusual for one lawyer to, repre- to represent 100 people at the same at the at at the same time and equal pay for both sides so the best legal talent yes. doesn't go to one side or into private practice and so that's so, the subliminal messages and sent that hey doing the work of a prosecutor is somehow more important than doing defense work when in truth both are equally important in, in having a just system yeah i think the public you know we in the public we don't realize how much discretion prosecutors have right from the moment of deciding to to uh, to indict Right, they can just go yes. for an indictment or go for a plea, offer a plea to how they conduct the prosecution, right? Which witness to call and what evidence to pursue, and so on and so forth. That's what you're talking about, not at the level of sentencing, but of prosecution. 
Right, yeah, exa- exactly right. And, and then other steps along the way, I mean, you know, so one of the common forms of misconduct is, you know, withholding exculpatory material, withholding evidence of innocence right. or that would be favorable to a defendant. I mean, the prosecutor starts out with having the whole file from, from, from the police, and so, you know, having both sides have equal access to that from the beginning is another change, but the way that the system is now, the prosecutors have the whole file and it's up to them to decide what information could be helpful to the defense and then turn that over. And a lot right. of times they don't turn it they don't turn it they don't they don't turn it over. Well, unless, you know, you're rich, right, and you have a dream team who would be uh, unleashing bulldogs, you know, to go after these files and to hound the prosecutor to give you a fair trial. Did you yeah, have a private well, then, lawyer sure, or a course. public defender? I had a, I had a public defender. I could not afford to, I couldn't afford to hire one. And, you know, just like right. somebody wealthy would be able to afford to hire their own investigator and hire their own experts to counter any mm-hmm. experts that, you know, or to reevaluate you know, um, evidence, and that's normally not options for people who are go or poor. Right, right. You were only a 16-year-old kid in, in what, upstate New York with a single working right. mother. Well, correct, yeah, except <laughs> that, uh, yes, yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, I consider Westchester to be a suburb, not really upstate, but... Oh, yeah, well, what I, do I, I know? Yeah. I'm just, like, fresh off the boat. I mean, anywhere outside of Brooklyn is just upstate. <laughs> this is true. This is true. All depends on who you ask. So, yeah, from that perspective, you are correct. I agree with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you're talking about innocence being the luxury of the wealthy. Yeah. In this country yeah, so, for well, now. I'm not talking about quality defense. Quality defense yes. being the luxury. I mean, you're, you're better off to be guilty and rich than innocent and poor. Uh-huh. But didn't the judge at your trial said to you, I think that you're, you, you're, you're innocent, but what can I do? You know, the jury found you guilty or something like that? Yeah, yeah. At the, yes, at the sentencing hearing, I begged the judge to overturn the verdict because I was innocent and I referenced the DNA to support my contention because semen found on the victim didn't match me. Um, and the judge said, maybe you are innocent, but then he said, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, he, he didn't find any legal reason to overturn the conviction and therefore he sentenced me. But... You know, he could have overturned the conviction. I mean, that he could have accomplished that legally by overturning any number of rulings that he had made against me in the course of the trial. So he had mm-hmm. the way. It's just that it was, uh, it was um, easier and more politically expedient for him not to rock the boat that way. And that's right. what he did. Right, right. Um, and by the way, you know, in, in case people don't know, you are a white man. I am. That is correct. Yes, and and so a lot of these wrongful conviction cases. Do you know about the racial uh, uh, quota? Is it mostly African American yeah, men, yeah. or? Yeah, it happens mostly to minorities, and out of the minorities, uh, most frequently to African Americans. It does transcend racial lines, but in terms of frequency, yes, much more frequently to African Americans and other minorities. Right, by virtue of who get arrested and spotted more. But you were caught up in this system. So, yeah. uh, Jeff, let's go to a commercial break. And then when we come back, I would like for us to talk more about how you made your way, not out of prison, but, but, but out of, uh, of, of the memories, the experience of being a convict, and to, uh, to find your way to where you are here now. All right? We'll be right back great. after a couple of minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, during the break, I kept bragging on Jeff about, you know, how he really could do much better than Tom Cruise. <laughs> and then we talked about, you know, his uh, the rights of his story, and he's very protective of it, um, and, and rightfully so. Um, you know, for a lot of people who have gone to hell and back, uh, the story is so important, so precious, because in many ways, that's the only thing, the one thing that they have um, to hold on to. But... Um, Jeff's story is not over yet, obviously, of course. And so I asked him, Jeff, can you tell, can, can you say, what what would you say your story is about if you could um, have sole authorship of it? The story would be, I mean, sure, it's about being wrongfully convicted and exonerated, but more than that, that's just a smaller theme. The larger part right. is just overcoming tremendous adversity in one's life in order to and to, to then transition you know to turn into the butterfly and to just be a, to make the most of your life and to be to be an agent of positive change what was for you what was the thing that you had to overcome I mean, the, the adversity in life. I mean, first being being wrongfully convicted, then each appeal that I each appeal that I lost, and then once I was released. I mean, it took me five years before I uh, 
got any compensation. So, I mean, adjusting to the out, to being free, uh, overcoming the, all of the psychological after effects, all the sociological after effects, trying to find my identity, uh, trying to find my place in the world and, and, uh, trying to put back, put a personal life, uh, together and then setting goals and working towards those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was talking before about time. I mean, it was a big chunk of time that got eaten away for you. You know, you you went in jail as basically a kid and you came out looking, expecting to behave, to act, to live like a man. But that probably yeah, didn't exactly correspond. Correct. Well, one, one consequence of that is, you know, I obviously am in a hurry to, you know, get to where I want to be to actually then start begin to living life. I mean, mm-hmm. as opposed to, as, you know, I'm trying to catch up with the time that, that, yeah. that, I, that, I, that I lost so I can try to hurry up and equalize and be at the same place that I would have been if I hadn't been imprisoned or be in the same place as somebody else of a comp, of, you know, co- comparable uh, age and background would have, would have been at. Mm-hmm. So you had missed out, you know, on your entire adolescence, really, and, and, and your 20s. How do you make up for that? Well, let me add, it's, it's a very broad, unfair question. When you came out, when you entered society again, you know, what, what was the most difficult thing for you? Being lonely. I would, uh, being lonely, I would say that close second is, you know, just on a practical level, be, you know, being, being able to earn money. I mean, you know, be, you know, being able to make ends meet, that was a very, very hard thing. And maybe a third thing would have been the psychological after effects. But I think that, a bigger issue than those two things was just, you know, was just being lonely because you know you lose you you know you you lose track of um, you know you lose you lose touch with friends and family and you know if there's no witnesses to one's life, where's the meaning in that? Right. Where's the history? Yeah, mean, meaning times you know meaning times actualization. Mm-hmm. I mean actualization times uh, audience equals meaning. And if one of those mm-hmm. equations is set to zero, then, you know, anything times zero is zero. You said there were no witnesses. You mean uh, friends had, had moved on. That's what you're talking about? People yeah, have friends had gone. moved on. Family members had become strangers, and it was hard to communicate. So, you know, having people just to socialize with on a day-to-day basis. So I'm released. I'm 32. I, I've lost touch with everybody, you know. But internally, I'm 17, although I'm physically 32. And mm-hmm. I still want to throw a ball around. I still want to play kickball yeah. and play wiffle ball. And I want to go to an amusement park and I want to hit the bumper cars. And I want to right. try all these new things that I used to see on television that I never got to do. I, in essence, want to try to live my 20s again because right. I can't go backwards. And it's either going to be now or never. But then who are my peers to do that with? Who are, who are the people that I know? I have no more connections. They're in a different place in life. They don't share the same interests. They already have most of their primary and secondary relationships established. Most of the time is spoken for. So how do you start over again building a life when you have like no assets to, no, to start out with? I mean, it's not like an immigrant coming to this country where you can just find like an enclave where a lot, there's a high concentration of people from the other country where right. you can go and you can meet somebody and they'll plug you into everyone in that community. There is nothing comparable to coming back from having been wrongfully imprisoned. Where are my right. peers at? Right, right. And so also, how do you share? How do you speak of your experience, right? That's in a way that people yeah. can recognize. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's an issue also, particularly knowing you know that really there isn't there's very little to nothing in their background to you know uh, understand where I where I've been at, what I've experienced. Whether you're talking about being arrested for something you didn't do, to the trauma of being on trial for it, or being wrongfully convicted, or being wrongfully imprisoned, or the difficulties in reintegrating, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to mm-hmm. communicate these things in the yeah. same way like a soldier might find it difficult to explain things to non-soldiers, but can can have meaningful conversations with other people who've been in the military, even though it might have been a different branch or, you know, uh, they didn't serve together. Exactly. Yeah, you had stepped into a whole other world, a whole other universe. Uh, Correct. It's also, you know, the experience, the living in prison also, right, it shaped you, it socialized you in a very peculiar way. Uh, well, it did. It did in the sense that you know it's a different world in there. But uh, you know, uh, you know, it, you really have a so limited associations rather than friendships. But I want to share that a critical piece to me is that although I learned the mores and survival tactics of prison, I never uh, internalized them and adopted them as my own. I never lost out on my humanity. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that was a key that was a key difference. But you know, upon being released, you know, I talked about being loneliness being being a difficult thing. You know, yeah, I know how to be by myself. I largely was that for 16 years. But that's not a quality life. That I didn't come home to live that kind of a life. I, I want to have normal, you know, interactions and relations and, and community and friendships and uh, things like that. And activity partners, you know, have a higher level of communication that would than than what would normally be the allowable in, in, in or feasible or practical in prison. Mm-hmm. What what helped you? What what immunized you in prison? How how were you able to preserve your, your mind and your soul? I read a uh, education. I, I read a lot of uh, nonfiction. I read a lot of nonfiction books. I mean, I I form. I got my GED. I got an associate's degree, uh, and mm-hmm. then the year was a bachelor's before the funding was cut. But when that happened, I started taking vocational trades, and then I and then I started reading a lot of. Uh, a lot of nonfiction books. I mean, including you know a lot of um, self-help type books and books on books on um, relationships and um, mm-hmm. political you know p- political and books on uh, like on meaning. Like I read Viktor Frankl's book um, Mankind's mm-hmm. Search for Meaning. I I mm-hmm. read How to Be an Adult in Relationships by David Richo. When I read the Chicken Soup with a Prisoner's Soul book and other similar things, and those things were all part of my holding on to my humanity. Yeah. What are you reading now? Other than your well, <laughs> old law school books. stuff, I have a. I would. I don't have time to read anything anymore. Other Isn't than trying to keep current right? in yeah. my field and and law school stuff, you know, kind of what you alluded to before. I would like to though, but you know, right now I'm still on the merry-go-round. I'm still, you know, I'm still spinning the plates, and as soon as I stop, they're going to fall down to the ground and break. And all my work before that and getting them to spin is going to go up in smoke. So right now, I cannot. Uh-huh. You, you can't afford to stop time. Now. Right, right. And speaking <laughs> of which, you know, there's another part of the dream beyond which I mentioned to you, which, uh, which you know, you, you warmed me up quite a bit in this short time. So I'll, I'll, I'll share. I'll share more. Yes. What, what so is, another, you know, so your story is not over yet. Dream. We're at chapter maybe chapter two, uh, yeah. hopefully so of a book of 20. part of the dream is this, okay, is, <laughs> you know, at the right time, at, at the right time, right position, uh, you know, and, and against the right opponent, um, I, I want to move back to Westchester County, and I want to run for district attorney to have a real conviction review unit, like was kind of like um, 
uh, the late Ken Thompson, who was a Brooklyn DA, mm-hmm. had in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. where 23 people were exonerated in two and a half years. I mean, you could never get that kind of a result from outside of the system, you know. Um, so I would like to do that and to be able to move the move the needle on policy issues from the district attorney's uh, p- uh, p- uh, position and, you know, help people get free, not just innocent people, but people who already have been uh, rehabilitated or aging people in prison who are no longer are a threat and people who have debilitating illnesses and, you know, really are elderly, people who are there as nonviolent offenders, all these types of people that I walked amongst and what I saw, I, I can't forget what I saw. And so there are legal, there's a bunch of legal ways to help them that I could do from that perch. You know, so I want to do that. And another part of it is a little bit of frustration in the sense that I'm tired of trying to convince people who have their hands on the levers of power to do the right thing, you know, often not getting them to do it. I want to actually, so being tired of that, I want to be able to do it myself. So what is their reason? But what is their, their ethical or existential uh, rationale for saying no to reform? Uh, yeah, I think that it's expe- I think his experience is putting their career ahead of morality, you know. Uh, in in some circles, um, I think that you know, um, moving the needle on the issues where I'm talking about. I mean, where 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 I think that justice and and accuracy are somehow somehow being equated to being soft on crime, and that mm-hmm. that's you know, and it, it, it you it's hard to win re-election. But I feel that. If you have to sell your soul to keep the position, then the position is not worth it anymore. The goal should never be to get and acquire the position. It should always be what you can do with the position once acquired. And so if you have to lose yourself in the course of it, I don't think it's worth it. I mean, me personally, I, I, I have to look in the mirror. I, I got right. to be able to sleep at night, and I, I have a conscience. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I could never bring myself to do things what people have done. I mean, uh, I remember there was a presidential candidate who became president, and we'll all figure out without me mentioning the name, but he, he allowed a mentally retarded man to be executed mm-hmm, while he was mm-hmm, governor mm-hmm. in order to not disrupt his presidential campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, that's crazy to me. I, how could you do something like that? I, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't imagine. But yeah, or, done. you know, also, you know, the, the case of Carla Faye Tucker, I think, was her name right. uh, under Bush, right? I mean, she Bush. served time, yeah. and, and, and her story was about showing how you can really redeem and reform yourself, and she did so much good, and they still executed her, yeah, just therefore contradicting the whole point. That's of, right. Of, I remember Ricky Ray Rector, you know, from, from Arkansas, who was the person I was referring to, and Bill Clinton let him be executed rather than disrupt his presidential run. Yeah. I but mean, but Jeff, now so these pe- the, the district attorneys, the presidents and so on, they want to hold on to their position. But to do that though, they had to be voted in. They had to find a way to appeal to people. And my my observation is that they succeed in being in office because they appealed successfully to people through the route of fear and of hate. Right? So right. what you're trying to so sense, you're trying yeah. to say let's go with with common sense with wisdom mm-hmm. with compassion with honor mm-hmm. that doesn't appeal to people for some reason or you have to still find the right campaign manager to to pitch it to people well, to get voted in campaign manager in terms of carrying it out but it first has to be within the candidate themselves 
right? The idea is, I mean, are you being led by the conversation or, or, are, you, or are you leading the conversation? You know, is the, dog, is, is the tail wagging the dog or is the dog wagging the tail? You have to try to persuade people. You have, to, you have the bully pulpit, right, whether you're in position or running for it, and you can go out and make your case. And if you make mm-hmm. your case the best that you can and you leave it all on the table and you come up short, at least you did the honorable thing. At least you tried, and, and you did raise public awareness in the course of that. You know, that's not only the executives, people in the other, you know, legislative branch of government, and, and you know, then, you know, even in terms of judges, in terms of the types of rulings that they make. I mean, when judges say, you know, like in certain, a lot of cases, judges say, well, I consider this sentence I'm about to give you to be draconian, but uh, here's what the law says, and so I'm going to do it. So I don't see why at least one time, you know, in that type of case, why not, you know, why, why not exercise discretion and declare a law to be unconstitutional and, refuse, and just declare it unconstitutional, make your ruling that way and let the, let the parties appeal it to the higher court. If they reverse, they reverse, but at least, further, at least do the right thing yourself and try to further public discussion, try to move the needle. That's better than going along with something uh, silently, don't you yeah. think? Yeah. You know, I... I at the risk of being a little bit trite, I would say that you are you are lucky because I hear the fire in your voice. You are ma- you know you have a mission, you have a purpose, you are driven, right. and right. that's a very a very fortunate thing. Not not many people you know who come out of jail who've gone through what you did can retain can find and retain this this fire. Um, my my question that I want to throw at you before uh, we go on the you know commercial break. <laughs> mm-hmm. Time and money is still here, even though we want to ignore it in this bubble of the radio show. Um, I, I want to ask you about, you know, is there, what, what is there still, what you, what you still carry with you, you know, in the dead of the night when, when the fire uh, and, and when the mission is sort of, you know, mm-hmm. put on yeah, hold at the door. What, what, what yeah, happened so- to that loneliness? Hold on, Jeff. Why, why don't we just go and break? Because I don't want to inter- interrupt you midstream, you know, when the, uh, the sure. commercials go on. And we'll come back. Okay. We'll be right back, folks. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. 
Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. So Jeff, before we broke, I was asking you about what you still struggle with. That loneliness, where has it gone? What have you done with it? Yeah, I, I, still, I, still, I still feel it. Um, I think, I mean, what I've, done with it for the, for the, I've, what I've done with it for the most part is, you know, I kind of distract myself by the <clears throat> increase. I mean, my, 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 the pace of my schedule is, is, is up at least twice as what it was before law school because, I mean, law school is a, kind of a beast, and that's what it does so if I have a bunch of things to do each day I mean that you know I I distract myself from it from the activity but then you know I do inevitably reach points in time where you know whether that's at at night and I finally am finished for the day or I have a couple hours off or I would like some company to do this that or the third you know and then I start to feel it and Mm -hmm. in terms of what I want to do I mean I'm trying to spend some of my summer on personal improvement which one of which is to try to um get my social life in, you know, in flux and try to balance out. But the problem is I haven't been able to actualize that because a bunch of things have been have piled up during the last month of prep for law school finals. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to do the responsible thing and, you know, get those things off my plate first and then, then be able mm-hmm. to get to that. Do, do people scare you? <laughs> do you find it hard? <laughs> <laughs> to to be with people to to connect no, with people. No, I don't. People don't scare me. I don't find it hard to be with people. I find it hard. I find it hard to. Okay, never I, mind. I, I was just talking for myself. <laughs> but, I, but I only find it. I only find it hard to be with people in the sense of you know finding people who like some of the same things that I that I that I like in in, in terms of just you know hobbies or a, or shared activities because after a while I, I feel like a relationship is limited if the extent of it is we can get together and have, I have a conversation. I love good conversation. I'm a people person. But if there's no shared activities or shared interests, then that's a challenge. And that's, when, that's, what, that's what really what's been a big challenge for me is, is having those uh, limited relationships or just single interest relationships where there's only one thing that's in common because mm-hmm. I like variety. I like to be eclectic. I want to experience many activities. I want to experience the world. But if Somebody can't cross genres of activities with me having some things in common while being flexible and open to others, then I don't think that there's enough there to. You're talking about really, you know, companionship and friendship with a big F. Yes. 
Yes, exactly right. Yes. It's a very particular kind of intimacy and of love. Yes, exactly right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, do how did you find... What was the process, you know, through which that you you settled on on this on this mission? Did you leave jail thinking that's what I'm going to do? No, no, I didn't. Um, I, when I when I was released, uh, I gave an off the cuff presentation to the news media at the press conference for you know, that I, where I held them for two two and a half hours, and at that moment, it dawned on me that I could that I could. Um, be part of the innocence movement without necessarily being a lawyer, because I had read while I was in, in prison, I had read that some exonerated people had turned to the speaking circuit, uh, and so I thought about speaking. Uh, I worked with, uh, New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty uh, reached out to me, and so they introduced me to uh, lobbying and uh, elected officials and going to, hear- going to hearings and, you know, trading privacy for awareness. Uh, a, a person who had just I was a founder of a independent newspaper. They offered me a job as a columnist, a weekly columnist. So writing got added to the repertoire, and so all those things. So it kind of became like a gradual, a gradual thing where I learned different facets, and I had you know a few mentors uh, along along the way. And at some point within that, I, I just the thought dawned on me. You know, this didn't happen to you for nothing. Uh, you know, there's got to be a higher purpose. You know, in this, I, and, and eventually I settled that, you know, I think that this is what I'm in the world to do. And when I embraced that, it gave me higher purpose and uh, allowed me to take some silver lining out of what, out of what happened to me. And I, and I have a sense of peace and accomplishment, and I, I enjoy what I'm doing, certain mm. parts of the... You won, you know, you won a multi-million dollar uh, award from the federal jury. Why are you not Correct. in the Bahamas, in some mansion? Because I can't, yeah, I get that question a lot. Well, that's because I can't, I can't forget about the men and women I metaphorically left behind, and I don't think that there would be very much meaning in doing in doing that. And another aspect of it is, I don't feel like a lot of people have had the same educational opportunities that I've that I've had, or they, you know, they emerged in worse mental shape than what I did, and so I feel a type of moral responsibility to. You know, to do as much as I can, and that means not, yeah. you know, not going to the island, not crawling under a rock someplace <laughs> never to be heard from again. Uh huh. Right. Right. I would say also that it's not pure altruism, right? It's it's for your own pleasure. I mean, there is nothing, nothing more precious, more pleasurable than to be able to live life in a meaningful way to fulfill your purpose. I and would agree with know, that, and I also want to add that I find the work to be healing. It, it, it mm-hmm. it's healing. It's cathartic. Mm-hmm. And this is how you take back the 16 years, hopefully. Right. And this is also the vehicle through which I, so I take the energy that I would otherwise feel and I channel it into my advocacy work. And without that, you know, I would be angry. I would be bitter. But, you know, I, I, I have a healthy way of, you know, getting rid of that energy, putting that into this work. And then that enables me to, that puts me in position to try to live as meaningful a life as I can. And to be in the position to to actually impact on lives other than just your own, that is a right, tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. God willing, I'm never going back inside. I'm not never going to be wrongfully imprisoned again. But this is about 
other people? Can, can I prevent this from other people? Can I mm-hmm. help mm-hmm. other people that are in a position? Can I be the person that I wished I had when I was on the inside? And that was why I started um, the Jeffrey Duskovic Foundation for Justice using some of the compensation that I got. And our mission is to free people who are, in fact, wrongfully uh, imprisoned and to pursue policy changes to prevent it. So in our five and a half years of existence, we have, in fact, exonerated two people, and we got another five people out through other legal ways. And so, you mm-hmm. know, that's kind of like the ultimate. That's the ultimate healthy high, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm chasing that, and I want to experience that. I want to experience it early and often. Yeah. <laughs> there is. I think there's a Jewish saying along the line of, you know, you save one life, you save the whole of humanity. I'm very much aware of that saying, and, and I try to I try to live that. That's definitely a, a Jewish saying that I, that I, that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, you you know people probably sometimes call you a, a hero? Do, do you agree with that label, with that caption? I mean, people do sometimes call me a hero, and. Look, trying to be objective about something subjective, right? And and I'm going to answer you with a caveat that, you know, it, it's not really for me to call myself a hero or not. It's for other people to think and have an opinion because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm not presumptuous. So that being said, trying to nonetheless give you an objective answer, uh, people do view me that way. And I, I think mm-hmm. that in, in some ways what I'm doing is is heroic, yes. But in another way, though, and this is also part of what keeps me up at night, is I'm well aware of what my limitations are. And I know that, you know, look, I haven't always been able to help everybody, you know, certainly not in the the ways in which everyone wants me to, but even as to, you know, my core life mission of freeing people, you know, uh, when we, whenever we turn a case down or, you know, uh, or, you know, or people think that, you know, I, the, the speed at which I can get them free, you know, and it's not that way, uh, you know, it, that's, I'm aware of the disappointment. Mm-hmm. I mean, two of the personal tragedies that I've had is, you know, two people, two people died. Two people died while on my foundation's waiting list. We have, a, we have about like a backlog of about, you know, 500 cases that are raw that have to be screened and then from there, you know, then actually worked on, and then, then, the, then the investigation begins, then the filing documents, and then the long fight in court happens, right? And, you know, we get limited public support, and, and mm-hmm. so I'm working with, you know, 20 volunteers and volunteer lawyers, and, you know, we're all swamped, and, you know, and we have long, some people have been waiting for as long as four years, you know, and two people, while waiting for us to get to them, they passed away. Mm-hmm. And that killed me. And in that moment, I feel inadequate, and I, you know, and I and I feel like, well, maybe I'm not such a, I'm not such a hero. I feel like I let somebody down, and I know it's not really logical. But then again, emotions and sentiments aren't really totally logical. Not not completely. You know, uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, who, who was an author of myths, you know, said that a hero is someone who, you know, ventures outside into into the the, the outer bounds of common daily common life and and encounters fantastical supernatural experiences, right? And and he's he goes through a great trial and and wins a victory, 
And a hero is someone who comes back to his tribe, to his community, his society, and share the special knowledge to, to give the gifts that he won uh, in that heart-worn uh, battle, you know, uh, to, to his people. Uh, so that's a, a, a different definition of hero, you know, of someone who has been transformed at great right. cost to himself. Yes. And then comes back to his society, and his society is in turn transformed by his work, by his knowledge. I right. think that definition by Joe Campbell is closer to your experience, my dear. <laughs> you know, and uh, oh my God, we are almost at the end. By way of parting, can I read to you something? I, I don't wish know that what you would. Yes, do. I don't know what you would make of it, uh, but but I, I hope that uh, you would find uh, the, the 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 friendship, the wish of friendship that is buried in this poem. It's by Mary Oliver, um, and I would take a leave of you on this. And and the poem is called "The Journey." One day, you finally knew what you had to do, and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars begin to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. Jeff, I wish for you much, much more beauty and love in the journey ahead. And I thank you so much for joining me and the listeners today. Thank you very much for having me on. This This was, this was the deepest and this is the only interview I've ever done like this. We focused in on, you know, deeper meaning of life. And I'm, I don't know what to say. I'm speechless, but except that I'm really happy to have been a part of it. And thank you for including me. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Next week, find me again here at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I will speak with Arthur, Arthur Sadowski, who is considered one of the premier bass players in the New York City scene. So we will speak about his music, about his love for his art, his effort to bring beauty and passion to the public. We also speak about his experience as an immigrant, um, as a victim of persecution, and how he came to the States and won asylum here. So we'll speak about his, his experience as an immigrant at a time when immigrants are being referred to as animals and rapists and thieves. I think that it's it would be a, a breath of fresh air for me and Arthur to speak to each other about our experiences as immigrants. Goodbye, everyone. Take good care. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. 
Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.